Great, thank you. Hi, my name is S.V., uh, and I'm a compulsive overeater and a bulimic. Hi, thank you. I'm using my initials because my name is pretty specific. Um, thank you so much for asking me to lead, even though I don't think I would have felt that way this morning uh, to say that. <laughs> but truly, I am really grateful to lead this meeting because not only is this meeting important, Latino is really a long-established and really well-regarded meeting in Los Angeles and around the country, but because this is one of the meetings that was the cornerstone of my recovery. Before I was able to sit in the front and share openly and talk about exactly where I was, I sat in the back and I didn't talk to anybody and I could just show up here any way that I looked, any way that I felt. I didn't even have to really talk to anybody. As soon as the prayer was done, I could be out the door, but I would have absorbed something and heard some words of wisdom, experience, strength, and hope in this room. So I'm really grateful to be part of that chain. Uh, so thank you for giving me that opportunity. Okay, so I'm going to just stick to the format. I'm going to tell you what it was like, what happened to me, and how I came to stand here this morning. Um, I am one, like many people here, a transplant to California. I'm an East Coaster, New York City, born and raised, very proud. Um, my family, I don't know if any of you will be able to relate. I have a super crazy family, super crazy. Um, they are, my father's family is from Cuba. And my mother's family is from St. Thomas. So I have like two loud Caribbean styles of people uh, in my background. And when I was born, it was not a happy occasion. My father and my mother were both 16 years old when I was born. And it certainly was not the fashion to have a child out of wedlock in the 70s when I was born. Uh, and so there was a lot of anger, a lot of finger pointing, a lot of blame particularly towards my mother, who as I've gotten older, I have developed a lot of compassion for because not only did she have me at 16, I have sisters that are twins that are 18 months older than I am. So she had a baby at 14. I don't even have any plants or pets or anything, so I can't imagine being on my own with three children under the age of two. That seems a little bit challenging. Um, so needless to say, when she and my father had to explain to the adults in their life that they were having me, no one was looking for this. My father was this privileged child of Cuban immigrants who was in prep school in Connecticut and coming home on the weekends and hanging out in the streets a little bit too much and meeting fast, attractive young women uh, and got himself into a situation that he was unable to cope with. Um, I have spent many years, decades, being so angry at them for not being good parents, but there was no possibility that that was going to happen. As I feel like I've come to understand, if you are 16 and 16 and a half babies, someone probably has failed you in your life. Someone's probably not paying attention. You're not getting what you need at home because you're seeking it out somewhere else. So by the time I came into the world, nobody was talking to anyone. Both families hated each other. And there was talk of, what are we going to do when this baby comes? Because my father's family's feeling was, I'm not even acknowledging this child. It's not ours, I'm sure. Here's where the story gets a little bit more complicated. I'm born, and I forgot actually I was going to bring some pictures because no one really ever believes me. When I came out of the womb, I looked exactly like this. This face has been with me since the day I was born. I have never changed. I've gotten bigger and grown into a woman. I look exactly the same. And why that is, I'm going to say a blessing, is I look exactly like my father. I am a replica 
of him. New York City, I don't know if you're aware, is kind of a big place. I have been walking down the street many times. People go, I know who your father is. I know him. And I'm like, of course you do. I've been on vacation and that's happened to me. We are the spitting image of one another. So the moment I emerge, my father's mother, my paternal grandmother, takes one look at me and goes, oh, that's my baby. That's ours. She belongs to us. There was, I mean, I don't know how you fight with a single 16-year-old, but I ended up going to live with them when I was about permanent, probably right from the hospital, but permanently when I was six months old. By that time, I had had pneumonia twice. I'm asthmatic. She could not cope. She was way overwhelmed. So my grandparents, in their benevolent wisdom, said, we will take this baby, and you can visit, and you can da-da-da-da-da. That never happens. They... I don't want to say kidnap. That's too strong of a word. But if you don't know where your kid lives and others are keeping them from, it's complicated. It's complicated. Um, so I'm living in this house with these older people. They're grandparents, but they're, you know, not the age of everyone else's parents. And I'm growing up in an environment. My father is gone. He absolves himself of all responsibility the way that teenagers do. And he goes back to prep school and goes back to his life. Um, my mother, I assume, goes back to her life raising the twins, and I am left in a house with two people who I think at the time thought that taking this baby, I think it exerted power, they felt like they were doing the right thing, and I come from a family where what looks like the right thing to do is the thing that you're doing, even though you probably don't want it. Because quite honestly, it was a parent victory at best, because now they've got a baby at home that no one is interested in raising at all. I will say gratefully, I think they really did the best that they could. They are two very broken people. I've come to, as an adult, understand. I grew up with alcoholics, certainly codependents. Um, you know, probably a checklist of all of the things. Many relatives of mine in the years since have fallen victims to drug addiction and all kinds of abuse. Um, you know, we just, I have a very toxic family. Those are the people that I come from. Um, and my grandfather, that I was living with my grandparents, my grandfather is a pedophile and has abused generations of women in my family, except no one is talking about it. And I can only assume, not assume, I can gather from what I've come to look at in my own father's behavior, I assume that he was probably abused too, um, behaving the way that he does now and did then. Um, the concept of God in my family is big, looms large. Again, my family's from Cuba. Spanish people are super into God. Um, and I grew up in a house with altars with scary saints and bleeding Jesus and <laughs> all kinds of like really frightening imagery but to me it's just like totally normal um, there are all kinds of you know it's Santeria so there are all kinds of superstitions and rituals and you know anytime there's a celebration food has to go to the saints first before you can eat it which just totally drive me crazy because I would like wake up in the morning and just sort of like stare at the food like I wonder if I can eat it you have to leave it there and you have to make all these offerings on their birthday so it's just all this God, 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 God but God is this really scary, frightening figure who's watching me at all times, waiting just to get me when I'm not behaving. Because although I grew up in this really, again, toxic, really abusive family, on the outside, everything looked totally normal. Everyone's, if you know me outside of the rooms, you know that one of my many frequently used words is appropriate. Because when I was growing up, it's either were behaving appropriately or you were not. And quite honestly, not behaving appropriately was not allowed. I don't know how my father got to do it, to get this, but there was no option for me other to not behave. You know, from the time I was an itty-bitty, 
It was explained to me that, you know, Shanta, when you leave this house, you're a representative of this family, and we expect you to behave accordingly. And I know what that means. It means be good, be quiet, be nice, be polite, don't hurt people's feelings, don't say anything. You know, if I wasn't a compulsive overeater at birth, which I do believe I was, I would have become one. I took my first compulsive bite, I would say, around five. I come from a very sports-loving family, and so the Mets were really, really big, and we would always go to the ballpark, no laughing at the Mets. Um, <laughs> um, and so we'd go to the ballpark frequently. I mean, I love to say, oh, my childhood was horrible every day, but it wasn't horrible every day. I have lots of memories of big picnic baskets, full of delicious homemade food, and long afternoons at the park with my family, watching the Nets lose, usually. Um, and the day that I remember, I took my very first compulsive bite. We had come back from this great afternoon at the park. There was tons of food left. Everyone's sort of relaxing. And again, see this, there's music, and there's yelling, and cigarettes are smoking, and people are drinking. And I'm in another room, and all of a sudden it occurs to me, I need something else to eat. And here's the part that I've never been able to really quite put together. If I had just asked for it, someone would have given it to me. I was five years old. No one was depriving me of food. That never happened. Something in me said I have to sneak. And I remember like all the little ways I went around and around. I remember shoving the food into my mouth and thinking, oh, wow, yes. And that was the first time I remember having that same feeling that I've come to have many, many times. That quick burst. That just tells me everything is totally fine. I can feel literally like everything just goes, ooh. And I can breathe, or so I think, and I think I feel much better. What's happened is I've just numbed out. And I had a childhood that needed numbing bad, frequently. Thank God I found food. Other members of my family were not so lucky. Drugs and alcohol kill a lot faster. Um... I don't know if eating disorders lie dormant. I know that mine is a progressive disease, but I have to say from the time I was, I don't know, like dating age, maybe like 16 or 17, it got a lot quieter. The purging sort of slowed down. The binge eating certainly slowed down. I come from a family where they're midnight eaters. I never picked that up, but overeating was sort of like in the family. Ethnic people, people like to eat. It doesn't really matter who you are. But from the time I was about a teenager-ish to maybe like right up and through until college, I don't have any real clear memories of the binging that would return later and that I had earlier. I don't know if it was living in the dorms. I was certainly overeating. But it wasn't the way that I did it before at home when I lived at home. I can't explain it, but it came roaring back. So whatever was going on during those years where it seemed a little quieter to me did not last. So I'm in my 20s, maybe 25 or so, and I am engaged to my boyfriend of six years. And I'm starting to have these dreams. It's like the first chance that I'm ever thinking that what has been set out for me, because this was the path, by the way. He's perfect in every single way you could think of. He's appropriate. He's nice, and he's friendly, and he's smart. And he went to the right school, and he has the right family. And my family thinks this is the way. He's not Cuban, so that's not great. But he's good. You know, he's this really nice, solid man. And everyone's like, this is so exciting. And I'm engaged. And it's really fun. I'm having parties. And then about five or six out, months out from the wedding, I started having these nightmares. And they were very puzzling to me. I'm in my dress, which is gorgeous. And I'm being pulled down the aisle 
by friends or family, and I'm screaming, I don't want to get married. I don't want to get married. But I had no idea what that meant. <laughs> I was super confused because I thought, well, maybe it's cold feet. I've never been married before. I thought, well, that's what happens. You just don't want to. And then I remember I said to a friend at the time, you know, I'm having these dreams where I'm being pulled down the aisle and I'm screaming, I don't want to get married. What do you think that means? <laughs> he was like, well, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, I think you don't want to get married. <laughs> had never occurred to me. If someone asks you to get married, you say yes. I've seen the commercials. I've seen the movies. That's what polite good girls do. When the boy that you've been dating for six months asks you to marry him, you say, I mean, for six years asks you to marry him, you say yes. And you get super excited, and you get married and have a perfect life. Except something told me that this was not going to be for me. Uh, we were spending our time. Now, I'm, like, I'm 23 or 24 years old, and I'm spending my weekends driving around New Jersey looking at homes. I don't know if you can tell just by looking at me. That's not really for... Sh that's not really for SV. She doesn't really do that. Um, and so I did, for the first time, what someone told me it was, I wasn't able to do. I broke rank. And I said, I can't do this. I cannot marry you. This is, this is not for me. Which was not well received by anyone. So not only did the groom and the groom's family obviously hate me, my own family said, you're insane. You will never do better than this. He's perfect for you. You know, they're probably right. He was. For the person that I was at that time, maybe that was the perfect person for me. But I knew somehow inside that there was this version of me kind of waiting, and I couldn't do it. So I literally broke and took my freedom and ran. And those were very interesting years. You know what? I had this adolescence and this time of growing up that I never did anything I wasn't supposed to which is why I really needed to eat, and especially I needed to purge, because I was always just doing the good girl thing. So first of all, I wasn't the good girl. So I really started having my adolescence in my late 20s and into my 30s, which was fantastic, by the way. I moved to L.A. I get a fantastic job at an entertainment magazine for men. I think that's what they build themselves. And I have a blast. I have a blast. I'm out, and I'm binging at night, it's fantastic, and I'm purging in the morning, and I'm going to work, and I have plans Thursday and Friday, Saturday and Sunday, and I'm having a ball, except obviously I'm not. I have vapid, shallow friends. I never tell the truth to anyone. I never share anything about myself, and I am abusing my body with food in such a way that it's so obvious now looking back, my, I'm starting to get more colds headaches. I'm calling in sick to work because I don't feel well very often. And then one day it just stops. And I wake up one morning, I'm an asthmatic and I can't breathe. It felt as if I had had pneumonia for three weeks and all of a sudden I'm filled with fluid and I can't breathe. Except I hadn't been sick. It's Monday morning. Went out on Friday, went out on Saturday, stayed home on Sunday, felt totally fine and woke up so sick on Monday. Now I know that my body had just reached the limit. It could no longer take the abuse of these elaborate feast that I was preparing all night, consuming, being ill from, and then just trying to behave the next day and starving all the next day so I don't have to feel that. Your body can only take so much. So I go to the emergency room. The doctor walks in, examines me, and says, okay, how long have you been sick? How many weeks? How many months? I was like, mm, four hours maybe? I just woke up like this this morning. He says, no, that's impossible. You don't get sick like this in a day, overnight. I don't say that I've been abusing my body for 30 years. He admits me to the hospital, and I spend two weeks, two weeks in the hospital, which is a really long time. Those of you who've been in the hospital know it is isolating. 
it is terrifying. You are so lonely, but it was exactly what I needed. That's the way I learned, by the way. My relationship with my higher power, which has certainly grown over the years, is, you know, God whispers to me, gives me a little nudge, and does a little dance, and I don't listen. I don't listen because that's just not the way that I learn things. And I accept that. God gives me a big push off of something, and I go, oh, right, I'm sick. Uh, so... I'm in the hospital, I'm doing some real thinking for the first time in my life. What's wrong with this? The doctor says, what's wrong? You're a young woman. You're in horrible shape. What's happening to you? Oh, I don't know. I'm just totally normal. I have two weeks to sit and think, and I know that something is wrong with me, although I don't know what the name of it is. I know that nobody eats the way that I do, but something's wrong with me. I leave uh, the hospital and come home, and I have oxygen attached to me, so I'm walking around thinking, well, I'm home from the hospital. I don't know what to do. And so I order Chinese food. <laughs> I order Chinese food, and this is my moment of food. It's so clear, I can remember it like it just happened yesterday. I have oxygen attached to me, and I'm shoving food in like this, just so I can get it down. Because I have this fear inside of me that is so big that for the first time I really am lost. Like, food's obviously not going to help, and I don't know what else to do. And I get on the computer, and I look up, and I put myself into a food rehab immediately. Thank God I have the money to pay for it. And I did that for three months. Is that five left? Thank you. Oh, gosh, I didn't even get far enough. Anyway, I get into this wonderful rehabilitation program and meet my Eskimo, the person who tells me about OA. And so I will skip all the less interesting things that happen in the interim because what really happens that's important is that I'm here. And I want to be really clear about this point for nothing else. You know, when I was asked to speak, one of the reasons that I didn't want to do it is because I thought, well, I really want to be able to say, I have this big prize to show for it. And I thought that it was sort of one thing or the other. I mean, listen, it's obvious. I overeat in abstinence, thank God. I no longer binge. I'm just about coming up on three years of abstinence from purging in November, um, which I stopped. Again, God gives me a message. I'm purging every once in a while, so it's not a big deal. I'm still identifying and working the steps. I'm like, I don't need to talk about bulimia. So I do it every once in a while, and that's not a problem. Super manageable. And then one day I choked at home by myself, and I got so frightened that I was going to die, and I could not have my friends and fellows find me like that. That felt completely disrespectful to this program. I couldn't do it. Nothing that anyone else should feel. That's how I felt, and I stopped that God stopped me in that moment. And I don't engage in that any longer. But what this program's given me is beyond like what I think like the prizes. It's given me hundreds of prizes. I can have an honest conversation with someone now. I don't have to be bigger than, smaller than. I can just be this as is. I have friends that are crowding the front row in support because they love me and in the back um, who love me who really show up for me specifically, not to get something from me, other than maybe love and understanding. Um, I have, if you know me outside of the rooms, I have this goddaughter in my life. I met her mother in these rooms. She just signed official paper because if something happens to her, that kid belongs to me. Why would anybody give me a baby? I'm totally crazy. I'm totally crazy. But what the thing is, you know, I've developed a relationship and through that, through that relationship with her, I've really healed so much. Oh, so much of the hurt that's inside of me. I get to mother her in the way I wasn't mothered. You know, I was a kid that was always so appropriate that the kind of watchword in my phone was, well, SV doesn't need anything. 
She can do it. You don't have to check her homework. She's done that. Washing clothes. Oh, no, she's done that. I was babysitting other kids when I was nine. I was that kid. Because it was, I never did anything wrong. So I said, see, the history is she's never done anything wrong. So she's always going to come. So you need to watch her. I no longer feel that sense of responsibility to be anything other than that. You guys, I shaved my head in this program like three months ago. It wasn't working for me. I was terrified. I cried. I didn't talk about it for like three months before I even started to do it. But something said to me like, this is what's going to happen. And I no longer argue with reality. Not because I'm some great spiritual person, but because it hurts. When I don't live exactly what's actually happening in my life, oh my gosh, the the fits that it sends through my body and the way that it makes me want to eat is insane. Um, and I also want to just say, again, I mentioned, you know, I obviously overeat in abstinence. I may always. I don't have, thankfully, one of the things I don't have in this problem is body shame. I think I'm super adorable all the time. Thank God. Whatever my family did or didn't do to me, they never made me, well, because they think I look just like them. They think I'm amazing. Um, that's what it is. That's what it is. They think I'm like them, so they think I'm great. But I never gave that to me. I want to be like, I imagine myself like fit. I'm like, oh, no, and I'm going to be on American Ninja Warrior or stuff like that. But I don't walk around feeling less than where this is concerned. It's all here. My parents didn't want me. You have no obligation to me. Why would you give a damn about me? That's the thing that I'm really working on most in this program. And it's taken me nine years of being here to even be ready for this. Because you guys have loved me all these years. It's been getting in there in drips and drabs and drips and drabs. And now I'm like walking into the freedom of like, oh, right. Not only can I love you, but I can accept it. Which is making such a difference in my life. It's not always perfect in my food or perfect in my behavior. But I walk with God. I walk with you guys. I live a life that... I'm proud of. I finished my last amends yesterday. Yesterday. I'm on step two. And I'm super excited. Tomorrow I turn, I don't know what number. I thought this one in 1971. How old am I? 43? I am 43 currently. I'm going to be 43. I'm 43 today. So tomorrow I turn 44. And my sponsor said, for your birthday, like, do that for yourself. And I have to say, like, standing here, nothing in my life is perfect, but everything is exactly as it should be. And I could not be happier to be here. So thank you for letting me share. This is the time for questions only. There is no sharing at this meeting. If you need to share, please do so with any one of us after the meeting. Also, please remember that the opinions of the leader are my own and not those of Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. When asking questions, you need not identify yourself. Please remember, if you ask a question, your voice may be audible on the OA podcast. Are there any questions? Hi, yes. Um, thank you so much uh, for your story. I was curious, what was your experience with the steps? So, um, what, were, what, was, what has been my experience with the steps? I was hoping no one would ask me this question because I'm compelled to be honest. Um, I have started, no, I've done the steps many, I've been, been in programs since 06. Um, this is my first time making it this far. And where I used to have a lot of shame around that until very recently, now I understand that's part of my story. This is as long as it's taken, and I've always stopped at the fourth step. I went through so many fourth steps, I find them all the time. Pages and pages and pages of them. And I realize now the problem was I was so afraid because what I had heard in the rooms is, 
the fourth step is what separates the men from the boys, and this is where it really gets tough. And I'm afraid of hard work. I'm afraid of scary things. And my most recent sponsor was fantastic. When we started working together a couple of months ago, she said, well, how many times have you done this fourth step? And when I showed her, she was like, okay, we're not doing this again. She was like, pick out your top ten. The end. We're not doing this again. All I did, and the secret is, I just did it. Just do it. I was, even though I heard people say, don't try to do it perfectly. Don't try. I was. I wanted my comms to be perfect. I wanted this to look good. I wanted all the information to look like it was in a book, like a professional made it. And also, she, she stripped me of the ability of that perfectionism. Just do it. Like she said, you're going to finish our men this week. And I was like, well, no. I'm speaking kitchen sink. It's my birthday. I have things happening. She's like, yeah, I don't care. Get it done. Get it done. Leave the message. Send the thing. Finished. Thank you. Anyone else? Yes. Um, how, uh, how was your uh, sponsorship in terms of like finding sponsors and being a sponsor yourself? Uh, what, is, has, what has been my journey with sponsor? Being a sponsee? Sponsor and sponsee. Um, so I have had all the best sponsors. All of them the best. Um, and if I could say this to anyone who is listening or here, stop waiting for the, to find the perfect sponsor. The perfect sponsor is the one that's working with you currently and giving you what you need. I heard someone share last week, I think it was, listen to your sponsor. Great. Yes. Listen to your, if you're arguing with your sponsor, you're arguing, you're arguing with the program. The book is the book. The program is the program. They have experience, strength, and hope. Listen to what they have to say. Um, my first sponsor was so instrumental, and I think it's kind of been this way ever since. My sponsors come to me. Because I'm always sitting around waiting and waiting and waiting to hear the thing that says you're the one who's going to save me and take this thing away from me and I'm never going to want to overeat or anything else. And that's not what it is. And my first sponsor was so wonderful because she was the most gentle, loving, breathy, sweet-faced person, meditator. I mean, I got into meditation my second year in program because of her. What a gift. And what she really did is what really the program, like she just loved me so much. I came in with such, not even low self-esteem, I just knew that nobody cared about me. She loved me even when I didn't call her back. And she loved me when I was, when all the things that newcomers do, she just loved me tighter. Um, and we ended our relationship only because she moved and got this great big life and had a baby and moved away. Sponsors, I've had fellows that are sponsors. That really doesn't work for me. I know other people may have success with that. I cannot be BFS with my sponsor. Because if you're my friend, at some point I'm going to be like, you can't tell me what to do. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm super willful. I need someone that I see, I can connect with. I see you at meetings. I might even see you slightly socially. But we're not going to talk about our dates or really very, we're not going to do that. For me, as a sponsor, I need someone who's there to talk about me. And as a sponsor, I'm doing, I think, what I've heard. I'm sponsoring the way that I was sponsored. And it's funny, I get newcomers. Newcomers come up to me all the time. They're so sweet. Like, are you taking calls? Would you? I'm like, yes, call me. And then they stop, and then they call again. And I keep saying to them, I'm just here to love you. I don't care. If you want to work the steps, that's on you. I want you to stay. So if you just need someone to call every three months until you decide you want to stay, great news. I'm totally here for you. So far, so good. Thank you. Any? Yes. Oh, yes, of course. Yes. Um, can you talk about um, uh, your higher power and how you went from 
the one that you had as a child and whether you had any trouble in terms of accepting that you had a higher power and, and how it changed in, in your journey in that. Okay, thank you. Yes, um, I've been asked to talk about my relationship with my higher power and how that might have changed. Uh, from the God that I was born into. Um, yeah, so as I said, my God growing up was a totally frightening, bloody, staring at you with dead eyes <laughs> kind of God. Um, so when I was, mm, I think, seven years old, I was asked to leave religious instructions at, at school, uh, after school program. They didn't want me to come back because I was having difficulty with the idea of blind faith. No. Knowing the childhood I was living, I could see why I had trouble with that. Um, and after that, you know, I come, I think what I've heard a lot in the rooms, my family looked religious and we had all the things. Those fools never went to church. They were not doing that. They were drinking and having a life and doing all kinds of other things. So I, I don't want to say abandoned God, but my concept of God was, and for me accurate at the time, I was just being punished because I was a throwaway kid. Why else would you drop me into this horror of a life with these lunatics that I, that I knew were never my people. They just were never me. I looked like them, which they never let me forget, but I was nothing like them. Um, so I would say for many years, I just thought of God as just sort of something punishing. And then, I think if I, to be perfectly honest, somewhere deep inside, like it says in the big book, there's sort of like just the thought of the idea of that inside of you. And what helped bring me back once I got here was that I am insanely crazy about nature. I love flowers. When the jacarandas bloom in May, I'm alone. Like I call people. Have you seen the purple flowers? I'll call people and go, the moon. And they know that means go outside and see what I'm talking about. I super connect with nature and water and the ocean and pretty flowers and bees and little birds. And I love all that stuff. And that makes my heart just like it's soft for a second. And to me, that's God immediately. The moment that I feel, oh, yeah, I just saw that really beautiful sunset. That feels really loving and beautiful to me. Um, when I need to have something that feels more human-formed, to at least concentrate my eyes on if I'm not outside and having that moment, it changes. So sometimes it'll feel like a mother, because I really need one. Sometimes it feels like a dad, because I also need one of those. It overall just feels like love, acceptance, you're good as is. Whenever I've had that experience of where the sponsor says, write down what you want to say to God with this hand, and then have him and then God write the response, Sounds is always the same. I love you. I've got everything under control. All you need to do is go out and be of service. Just go and do that. And it's, it's, it always happens. As soon as I'm worried about the thing that's not going to happen in the future, God puts it right into my lap in the version that is the most appropriate. The most appropriate. In the way that God sees best. And it always, it's exactly what I need. Thank you. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, the question is, what is my relationship like with my family? Well, I have, let's see, um, so family structure, just to give a little bit of clarity. So mother, father, my mother has two, then she has me, they separate. My father goes on to marry, woman has a son, so he has two, me and the son. My mother goes on to get married and has three more. But I'm the only child my parents have in common. I'm not in touch with any of my family today. I specifically do not speak to my parents. Um, I am not close to my siblings. And I used to have a lot of guilt around that. But for me, what I've come to understand is I had sort of like an, 
an, a closed adoption, I was away from them my entire life. By the time I caught up with my siblings, I was in college. We were all fully formed adults who had had drastically different lives. I was raised, for lack of a better phrase, in like a happy, privileged home, and they lived in poverty with an absent abuse, whatever. Everyone got what they got, but the outsides looked very different, but we were, we were very different people. Um, I tried in my early 20s to get the family that I was kept from, and I got to try to get super close to all of them. I even moved in with my mother. No. I say this, and then people look at me and go, this is, my mother really doesn't like me because she does not know me. She's an adult woman who's lived a certain set of circumstances. I am now an adult woman who's lived a very different set of circumstances. We don't speak the same language. She thinks therapy's for white people. Like, it's just like, a, we are just, we could not be more different. Um, my father's sort of the same. Like, these are people who are not interested in changing. They're not interested in me being who I am. If my family saw me with a shaved head, I cannot tell you the trouble that I would be in. Big, big trouble not okay not allowed it isn't done the end there's no conversation that just doesn't feel right to me even if I don't agree with your choices I love you I don't care about that um, so I've heard I've been counseled by fellows and in all kinds of places do I reach out to them do I try to get connected do I try to do that do I treat them like sick fellows for today I need all of that compassion and love and God for me. I have to heal to the degree that I feel ready. And that may not happen. I've made my peace with that. You know, again, I was raised by my grandparents, and when they died, I went through that grieving already of your parents dying. The people who raised me, I put them into the ground. I executed the will. I sold the house. I did that at 23 years old when I was totally not ready. Finished. These people I am totally related to, I will grieve for the people who love them in their lives because I know what it feels like to lose somebody that you love. Before today, they are not people that I feel serve me. So for now, they don't get to be a part of this. Thank you. Any other questions? Yes, Carol. Um, thank you so much for your share. Uh, I don't know if this is related to your program, but you've mentioned it a few times. So I was wondering if you would talk about... Uh, the decision to shave your head and what, what it, it, it seems like it's been, you know, spiritually emotional for you. Right. I'm wondering if that is something to share about if it relates to your recovery. Okay, thank you. I've been asked to share about me talking incessantly about shaving my head. Um, yeah, it is a big deal for me for so many reasons. Um, one, I would never be allowed to do that in my house. I didn't, I didn't bring pictures. The next time I speak a kitchen saying, I'll bring pictures. I used to have just very, like, I'd say Marsha Brady hair. Just, like, long, straight hair parted down the middle. Because that is what appropriate good girls in my family did. Then my hair went natural when I moved to California. And then I just, I don't know. I start, I've always said, like, if I have to wake up and do anything, it's too much. I just want to wake up and leave the house. But people would say, well, that's not possible unless you shave your head. I go, I'm never going to shave my head. I'm too vain for that. I, I need my hair. You know, it's the program. The program got me to shave my head. You know, I got to a place where I felt uncomfortable. I wasn't, I didn't look the way that I wanted to look. Um, and I was so afraid because I'm doing some outside work because of this program to address other issues. It just seems like 
I don't know, I guess like I was not hiding. I just like I can see myself. You know, someone said to me the other day, it's nice to meet you finally. That was what was hiding underneath all that other business. It feels like I'm kind of, you know, it feels like I'm giving birth to my new self currently. I feel like standing here because I'm right in the middle of so much personal work. This is so necessary. I'm like a baby. And I like doing this. Hats feel fun. It just, I don't know. I feel like I'm just going to keep shedding. Whatever it is, all this stuff just keeps coming off and coming away. I'm just like growing into my real grown-up self, I think. And I think that's why I talk about it all the time because I really like it. <laughs> Although I still get surprised by it. Yes. Oh, thank you for asking. Um, what meetings do I go to? How many? And do I have any favorites? I go to a minimum of three. Last week I did six. Because uh, I'm looking at different programs, which happens once we're here. Um, I do a Wednesday morning meeting. Big plug for that one. That's my home meeting. 7.30 in the morning at Crescent Heights and Sunset in that big tower. Um, downstairs in the attractive basement. <laughs> I do this meeting in half three years. And I do a women's meeting uh, tomorrow on Sunday, and there's also Serenity Sunday. I do, I can do either one of those. Um, you know, three meetings a week, you know, I think of this place, of this place, of this program, you know, you hear so many slogans, you know, think of yourself, I love this one, as a refrigerator, and there's food inside, and if you unplug for more than a couple of days, it's spoiled. You think of it like you have cancer, like I need my chemo, like I need my dose of medicine. Three weeks works. I mean, three times a week works. Four is really good. Five, I'm like floating. Six, I'm having like a religious experience every second of the day. There's, it just gets, it keeps getting better. There's no less is, no. More is more, more. Where this is concerned, go. Go to all the meetings. I go to, a, I go to all of them. I, I identify with the phenomenon of craving. So the mothership program really speaks to me, and I love hearing that. Although, thankfully, I don't have a problem, an allergy of that for today. Uh, yes. How have you dealt with romantic relationships and programs? Oh, oh no. Okay. Oh, good. I've only got four minutes or three minutes left. Okay. Um, exactly. Um, okay. So my romantic relationships. Historically, I like surprise bad boys. I love a bad boy. If you look like you are inappropriate, come and talk to me. <laughs> Motorcycles, tattoos, all of that. With people in my family go, oh, what? Yes. Those were historically my boyfriends. Um, as I got into my 20s, I started dating both men and women, and I noticed I like bad girls too, which was very interesting. Ladies who look like they're up to no good, come and talk to me. Um, in the spirit of honesty, I have also had, I was going to say inappropriate, I've also had relationships that were outside the boundaries. Uh, of, so I'd be dating this really lovely woman and be seeing my boyfriend at the same time. Um, thankfully, I don't engage in that, don't need to. Um, and I'm now fully on the prowl looking for a new romantic entanglement because it's time. It's time. I've done the work. Um, and I've dated in program, and what I've noticed has happened is I'm going along on my little path, going to my meetings, doing my thing, and I fall in love, and then I'm over here being in love and doing things that people in love do and not going to meetings and not paying to us. And then that breaks up, and then I come back, and I'm sad, and then I fall in love again, and I go over here, <laughs> and I look at that sweet thing. But what's different now is whoever comes into my life, be there a gent or a lady, you have to be so fantastic, I don't even know how you're going to... 
my relationships with my friends and my fellows is so fulfilling. You would literally have to like shoot like rainbows out of your butt like to get my attention and you're going to have to like get through my posse and you've got to know that I've got meetings at least three times a week. Like there was no like, well, okay, I'll stay in with you and go to breakfast. No, I got things to do because if I don't do this, I don't get to keep any of this. And I know that so well. Now, by the way, I love my life. I don't want to give less of it. So you've got to get on board. I know I've got to get on board with your stuff too. My stuff is the stuff that keeps me sane and as your person. And I really feel like the first time in my life, I can have both. I don't have to choose. Because if I had to, it would be this. Because without God, I'm done. I am, again, making elaborate meals and abusing my body. I'm not going to do that anymore. Um, so I will keep you all updated if I meet anybody fantastic. <laughs> yeah, I think that's it, actually. Thank you. <laughs> now it is time for the secretary's announcement.